Okay, so one evening while I was watching Killing Eve, which is a great show, by the way, I stumbled across the subject of today's episode. So the villain or assassin, the aptly named Villanelle, is meeting with her handler, Constantine, and she is supremely bored with their first murder assignment. So to get her all excited, Constantine decides to take her to the Reichsmuseum in Amsterdam and tries to inspire her with the great works of art somehow. What she does is she looks at the beautiful paintings and she snorts. She looks at all the great statuary and the prints and she snores. She can't even be bothered by all this beauty that's surrounding her until all of a sudden, a single painting stops her right in her tracks. Wow. They look like bacon. They look like bacon indeed. Humans have been making art for millennia, starting in caves roughly 40,000 years ago. From those early beginnings, we have constantly striven to accurately portray and make sense of the world that we find ourselves in. But as sunlit and enlightened as the opening of a cave may be, there are equally dark places the farther in you go. Foreboding, dangerous, filled with fear and horror. We make art about those places too. Welcome to Artis Obscura, where we ponder and explore art from the dark end of the cave. Hi, I'm Kathy Rick. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing Jan de Bond's The Corpses of the DeWitt Brothers. You can find links to the pieces discussed throughout this episode in the show notes. Welcome to Artis Obscura, Episode 3, Two Swingin' Dudes. So I'd never seen this painting before I had seen that uh, episode of Killing Eve, and being of the same morbid proclivity as Villanelle, I had to find out more. So who the heck were these DeWitt brothers, and what happened to them? There's actually a plethora of information about Johann DeWitt and a little less about his brother Cornelis. Um, Let's just suffice to say that they were well-heeled, very privileged, smart, and powerful. But let's start at the beginning to try to figure out how two such famous and influential heroes wound up with such a grisly fate. Cornelis was a member of an old Dutch patrician family, the De Witts. He was born in 1623 in Dortrecht, Holland, a part of the Dutch Republic. He was the son of Jacob De Witt and the older brother of Johan. In 1650, he became the Burgermeister of Dortrecht and a member of the States of Holland of West Friesland. Um, He was afterwards appointed to the important post of Ruard, which is the combined functions of uh, the chief of police and prosecuting attorney. In 1667, he was chosen by the States of Holland to accompany Lieutenant Admiral Michiel de Reuter in his famous raid on Medway. On this occasion, Cornelius distinguished himself uh, by his great coolness and bravery and was again chosen to accompany de Reuter in 1672 and took an honorable part in the great battle of Solibea against the United English and French forces. He was compelled by illness eventually to leave the fleet, but found on his return to Dortrecht that the pro-monarchy Orange Party were in the ascendant, and he and his brother, who were staunch, prominent members of the opposing pro-Republican party, were the objects of popular suspicion and growing hatred. He was arrested on false accusations of treason, and even under heavy torture refused to confess. He was ultimately unlawfully condemned to be banished. 
Johann de Witt had all the makings of a truly successful leader. His father was a well-respected mayor. His brother was a military hero. He had a natural intelligence and statesmanlike disposition. And he grew up during the time when the Netherlands was truly at its zenith. It was flourishing. This was the golden age. He rose in power in Europe during the ascendancy of France and also the bitter political and commercial rivalry with England. He managed to preserve the position of the United Provinces Republic, which is what the Netherlands was known as at that time, which culminated in Spain recognizing their independence in 1648. It wasn't until France and England combined against the Republic in 1672 that De Witt's political system called the True Freedom collapsed. The True Freedom consisted of the autonomy of the provinces to the exclusion of Prince William III of Orange from holding high office, a fact that's going to become pretty relevant pretty quick here. First, their father was a part of the Regenten, the merchant ruling class who was strongly opposed to the monarchists of the House of Orange, a branch of Europe's aristocratic dynasty also known as the House of Nassau. An interesting note, William of Orange, the guy who likely incited the Oranges to murder the DeWitt brothers eventually, invaded England and became the king. So he's also responsible for brutal conflicts between Catholics and Protestants that go on to this day in places like Northern Ireland. You know those orange and green parades um, that cause such violence and grief? Yeah, the Orange Order is from William of Orange, everlasting grudges from the 17th century. DeWitt controlled the Netherlands during the Dutch Golden Age. Uh, it was a time when the Dutch Empire was one of the greatest powers in Europe. Amsterdam was the center of world trade. The Dutch East India Company dominated Asian trade routes that made the nation very, very wealthy. He was re-elected to this position three times. As councillor pensionary, De Witt made great strides in securing and maintaining peace with the other European countries. He also managed to pit the Republic's enemies, England and France, against one another. Through all this, he still opposed the Orange monarchy and refused to let the Prince of Orange, William of Orange, hold a political position. Meanwhile, the tension between the Dutch and English governments escalated to the point of war in 1665, but Johann de Witt managed to maintain control of the seas. But in 1672, things wouldn't work out so well. Political chaos caught up with the Dutch Republic when Louis XIV of France suddenly declared war. The Franco-Dutch War became known as the Dutch Rompjaar, meaning the disaster year, as both England and France attacked and were able to effortlessly invade the Dutch Republic. While the Dutch Navy was strong, their army had been overlooked, and the Dutch people were suffered defeat after defeat after defeat at the hands of the French, and Johann's power collapsed. Many thought he'd failed and demanded stronger leadership, and that's where William III of the House of Orange comes in. The people called on William III to take over while they demonstrated against De Witt. This is when Johann's brother, Cornelis, was arrested for treason, subjected to torture, and sentenced to be banished. Having resigned on August 4th, 1672, Johann de Witt went to visit his brother at the Gewangenport, or the prison at The Hague. On August 20th, this was not a good day for the de Witt brothers. They found themselves surrounded by a hostile mob in favor of restoring the monarchy. The great writer, Alexandre Dumas, 
dramatized the murder of the DeWitt brothers in his novel, The Black Tulip. He had scarcely left the room when John, who with an almost superhuman effort, had reached the stone steps of a house nearly opposite that where his former pupil concealed himself, began to stagger under the blows which were inflicted on him from all sides, calling out, My brother! Where is my brother? One of the ruffians knocked off his hat with the blow of his clenched fist. Another showed to him his bloody hands, for this fellow had ripped open Cornelius and disemboweled him, and was now hastening to the spot in order not to lose the opportunity of serving the Grand Pensionary in the same manner, whilst they were dragging the dead body of Cornelius to the gibbet. John uttered a cry of agony and grief, and put one of his hands before his eyes. Oh, you close your eyes to you, said one of the soldiers of the Burger Guard. Well, I shall open them for you. And saying this, he stabbed him with his pike in the face, and the blood spurted forth. My brother! cried John DeWitt, trying to see through the stream of blood which blinded him, what had become of Cornelius. My brother, my brother! Go and run after him, bellowed another murderer, putting his musket to his temple and pulling the trigger. But the gun did not go off. The fellow then turned his musket round, and taking it by the barrel with both hands, struck John DeWitt down with the butt end. John staggered and fell down at his feet, but raising himself with a last effort, he once more called out, My brother! with a voice so full of anguish that the young man opposite closed the shutter. There remained little more to see. A third murderer fired a pistol with a muzzle to his face, and this time the shot took effect, blowing out his brains. John DeWitt fell to rise no more. On this, every one of the miscreants, emboldened by his fall, wanted to fire his gun at him, or strike him with blows of the sledgehammer, or stab him with a knife or swords. Everyone wanted to draw a drop of blood from the fallen hero, and tear off a shred from his garments. And after having mangled and torn and completely stripped the two brothers, the mob dragged their naked and bloody bodies to an extemporized gibbet where amateur executioners hung them up by their feet. Then came the most dastardly scoundrels of all, who not having dared to strike the living flesh, cut the dead in pieces and then went about the town, selling small slices of the bodies of John and Cornelius at 10 sous apiece. The mob had ripped them to pieces literally. The mob beat the brothers to death with sledgehammers. They hung them upside down, cut off their fingers, their penises, and other bits, some of which were cooked and eaten, and others were sold as souvenirs. Their hearts were cut out and put on display. Their limbs and pieces of clothing were sold to bystanders at auction. A finger raised 15 to 20 pennies, an ear 25 to 30, and a toe 10 pennies. Pieces of the DeWitt brothers were later displayed in pubs. Some of the pieces were dried and their hearts were preserved in turpentine. Though the exact details haven't been confirmed, it's widely accepted that the murders were savage. It's been said that the Dutch people actually ate DeWitt after killing him uh, with one version, even claiming that a member of the mob ate one of his eyeballs. The love em or hate em feelings of the public regarding the DeWitt brothers' representation in the arts began right after their murders. I mean, there were projected statues and portraits that were proposed lauding the DeWitt brothers and their contributions, but it was also met with equally strident requests to erect a statue to the man who crushed DeWitt's head. Uh, another encouraged his fellows to represent the cutting out of DeWitt's heart and the kicking of his head to pieces. Fierce reactions like these were found in dozens of pamphlets that were issued in the early days right after the murders. This Damnasio memoria of the DeWitt brothers had 
everything to do with the fact that the victorious Orangists saw no reason whatsoever to commemorate their opponents, whom they were, by the way, very glad to have out of the way. So upon the explicit wish and recommendation of the Prince of Orange, it was ordained that everything that bore upon the unrest and rebellions in recent times, whatever its nature and by whomever committed, must be and must remain forgotten and forgiven. Today, there are three statues of Johann de Witt in the Netherlands, all built in the 20th century, which is the least they could do for the man who was killed and eaten by his own people. So let's get to the painting and start with the artist. Not a ton is known about Jan de Bon. Isn't it always so with artists? The painter of the famous gruesome murder scene that resides in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. De Bon was born in February 1633 in Harlem, Holland, the Dutch Republic. After his parents died, he, when he was still a child, he lived with his uncle Hinderk Pieman or Piesman in Emden. Jan de Bon received his first painting lessons from this uncle, who was a painter himself. From 1645 to 48, he lived in Amsterdam and was the pupil of painter Jakob Becker. After completing his training, he worked for the exiled court of King Charles II of England, but upon the English Restoration of 1660, he didn't follow his patron, but moved to The Hague, where he worked as a portrait painter. This is where he came to know the De Witt brothers and painted both their portraits from life. He died in 1702, around his 69th birthday, and was buried in The Hague. So let's talk about the painting, the painting that stopped Villanelle in her tracks. On the back of the painting, there's an inscription in Dutch which reads, These are the corpses of Jan and Cornelis de Witt, painted from life by a famous artist as they hung from the whip at 11 p.m. Cornelis is the one without a wig. Jan de Witt has his own hair. This is the only image painted from life on August 20th, 1672. So this painting is horrible. If you guys get a chance, there's some great resolution um, images of it online. You can peruse it in great detail, which I did. And it's kind of horrifying. I mean, it's obviously it was painted at 11 o'clock at night. It looks very much like it was done um, at the time. Um, if there had been cameras, it's kind of a snapshot. Um, there's a fellow standing in front with a torch who's illuminating these poor disemboweled figures. Um, they're displayed in pitiful nakedness on this gibbet. Um, there's trees in the background it, at night. It's a night shot, a night scene with um, stormy clouds. I mean, the whole thing is very oppressive. And I say pitiful, and that's the first reaction that comes to mind. I mean, if you think about it, these were two men who, who devoted their lives to um, their country and were heroes. And through a twist of fate and some uh, bad luck and poor decision-making, they wound up looking like a couple pieces of bacon. Um, if you look at their faces, you can see how, at least in, in Johan, is the one that you can see most clearly. He's the one facing the viewer. His nose has been cut off. His eyes have been gouged out. His head is shattered. Um, it's, it's horrible. You move up his body, he's obviously been disemboweled. His fingers have been cut off. You can see his fingers and toes have been cut off. Um, one of the most pitiful parts of this painting for me is he's obviously been castrated, and there's just one tiny little bit of a tendon that's sticking out where his genitals should be. 
and to think of, I mean, I, I, I'm thinking as, as I'm looking back on the portraits that I've seen painted of both these men, I mean, they were really handsome, um, intelligent, dedicated men. And to be reduced to something that looks like they're in a butcher's shop is just, it's tragedy. You know, I wrestled with the fact of, of actually naming this episode what I named it because they are so, it's such a pitiful painting. It's horrific and pitiful. And, you know, much like the painting of Saturn is about the ferocity of the moment, this is the somber tragedy of the aftermath. The way the light is portrayed on this is just very masterful. And there actually is a question whether or not Debon actually painted this, because I don't think his name is on it. But people who knew him and people who knew his work, and he was there at the time this happened, it's pretty much a consensus that Jan Debon was the painter of this painting. So what else is there to say about this painting? Honestly, I don't know. I went into this not knowing anything about the DeWitt brothers, except that they were two guys that looked like a couple of strips of bacon. And what it turned out to be, with all this research, was a tragedy of Shakespearean proportion. Here were these guys, particularly Johann, who had spent his whole life in service to his country. Uh, he stopped wars, he, he boosted Netherland trade, he kept his country prosperous, and in the blink of an eye, uh, with some bad decision-making with the land army and the rise of William of Orange, he was reduced to a grisly leftover from a mob barbecue. And looking at this painting, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow and grief. It's just a pitiful, pitiful legacy. Well, folks, that was exhausting. But thank you so much for joining us at Artists Obscura, Episode 3, Two Swingin' Dudes, which, by the way, I'm still feeling guilty about naming it that. feel sorry for those DeWitt brothers. Be prepared for Episode 4 of Artists Obscura. It's going to be a real barn burner full of trigger warnings and unspeakable violence. We're going to be discussing Botticelli's Negostio Degli Onesti, or the Perpetual Enduring Cult of the Dead Girl. Artist Obscura is produced by Kathy Rick and Nathan Wilson. Our sound engineer is Nicholas Wilson. Please follow us on social media and check out our YouTube channel for unabridged episodes and more. If you liked what you heard, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash artistobscura. Obscura.